Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now we're just in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, ladies and germs, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is normally my job to deconstruct world-class performers of various types of all ilks. This time, we have a slightly different episode. By request, we have another drunk-dialing episode where I meander, gin in hand, Hendrix this time around, to my table where I record myself getting inebriated, dialing to many of you via phone and fielding your questions. Now, this is ladies' night edition. Why is this ladies' night edition? Well, the ladies were absent from the last drunk dialing fiasco. And why is that? Well, I thought I would explain a few things because it's just math, among other things. So I'm looking at the demographics, a result of a poll on Wufu here. And we have 11,643 respondents. So pretty, I would say, statistically representative. My audience is, as it stands right now, 84.04% male, 15.83% female, and 0.13% other. I will leave that to your imagination. 
And what that means is a few things. Uh, if we look at the math, last time people submitted their names, phone numbers, etc., and it's first come, first serve. The people who sign up first get called first. And three out of the 20, which is exactly 15%, were female. Unfortunately, uh, those women and uh, several guys as well did not pick up. So if I go to voicemail, I call the next person. That is what happened. So this time around, so that the ladies would not get crowded out by all the dudes, I did a ladies night edition. And we talked about quite a lot. We talk about language learning. We really get into the weeds on language learning. We talk about exercising with injuries or around injuries. We talk about viral marketing, my thoughts on that, my criticisms of that perhaps, handstands and handstand training, how I decide what to experiment with, how I decide after that what to share with you guys, teaching disabilities versus learning disabilities, and the craft of writing, common mistakes, goals, etc. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Of course, the blood alcohol content helps. And that is enough prelude for now. So without further ado, as I always say, after a long introduction, please enjoy volume three, ladies night edition of Drunk Dialing with Tim Ferriss. Uh, hi, is this Glennis? Am I getting that right? <laughs> you are totally getting that right. Sweet. Yes. Hi. Yes, miss. Yes, ma'am. Uh, <laughs> where am I reaching you? Where are you located? In, uh, in Toronto. Toronto. That's a fine town. I like Toronto. It is a fine town. I've spent some um, time there. There's a lot of good food. Have you? Yeah. Lots, there, of, lots of good, yeah. good companies, good people, good coffee. I dig it. Totally. Uh, how can I help? What can I answer um, or or just lie and try to make something up to answer? <laughs> um, okay. So, so my question was about, um, I've read The 4-Hour Body, love it, um, have used the, um, the diet um, <laughs> off and on for a little while now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the... The thing I haven't been able to do um, has been, have been the exercises, and that's because um, I have a couple of uh, sort of ongoing physical uh, issues, as I said uh, in my little post when I did this, uh, my body is sometimes a bit of an asshole. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I have a, um, I have a, um, a cervical disc that is, like, basically permanently bulged, so I can't do the kettlebells. And I have knee problems, so squats long-term are, like, not a good thing Mm -hmm. for me. Um, So I guess I'm wondering what your advice is for people who want to stay active as they recover from injuries or if their bodies are just, like, not as keen on some of the sort of basic, like, uh, HIIT workouts and that sort of thing. Like, a lot of those type of movements. Yeah, Well, you're catching me at a good time for this because I am in the process of recovering from two injuries as we speak. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I have a sprained ACL in one knee, so I cannot squat at the moment. And I have a torn left lat slash rib, which is extremely uncomfortable, needless to say. Oh my God, yeah. And uh, yeah. I have been addressing this question for myself. So here, here is the short answer. The short answer, and I'll elaborate on this, is do what you okay. can. 
I'm also sitting mm-hmm. about 15 feet from someone who is riddled with injuries, just like me, <laughs> who mm. is dealing with the same thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and giving me the stink We're eye. All a mess, and and giving we? me the middle finger slash stink eye. <laughs> uh, the answer is do what you can. And what that means is, uh, and I'm inclined to this as is everyone else, I think to particularly if you have an injury with a primary uh, mobility joint, say something that helps you walk like a knee or a prime mover, meaning a large muscle group like a quadricep or a lat or something Mm -hmm. like that to just stop. And to be frank, I've been a lazy ass and I've not done a whole hell of a lot in the last two weeks, but I just started yesterday and in the last few days focusing on the things that I can do, such as long walks, such as... um, effectively stiff-legged deadlifts, very slow stiff-legged deadlifts uh, that prevent the... They're doing a lot of the work that, say, kettlebell swings would do, but they're non-ballistic. So I'm using a a trap bar deadlift. This is something you step inside of. Uh, It's sometimes called called a hex bar deadlift. You could Google that and see what I'm talking about. But I'm doing very slow, controlled deadlifting movement with a hex bar, which is putting less sheer force uh, strain on, say, lower back. Uh, Cervical bulging disc is is a non-trivial issue. So obviously, I should say, to cover my own ass as much as yours, (laughs) is talk to your medical professional first. You're in Canada. Mm -hmm. shouldn't cost much. Uh, (laughs) Although you may have to wait for like 17 months, but do your best. <laughs> the good news is you guys can get everything over the counter. So if that there's that, it's true. but uh, there are things that you can do, right? Whether it is just right. calf raises or something else. I, in the case of injury, my general recommendation is swimming. Number one, which is mm-hmm. something I've also been doing. And, mm-hmm. and if you're not a swimmer, I recommend checking out total immersion swimming. It is a method of swimming. I've written a post on that with my highlights. Okay. I think it's cool. how, how I learned to swim in 10 days and so can you or some infomercially sounding headline like that. <laughs> uh, awesome. But I didn't learn to swim until I was in my early 30s. So it's uh, okay. it's it's a good introduction to that. The The second guideline that I would provide is low, low speed. So you're performing okay. slow motion movements. And this, right. this could mean five seconds up, five seconds down, 10 seconds up, 10 seconds down. There have been a number of, of right. interesting uh, exercise science studies performed with elderly women, for instance, who are recovering from, I'm not saying that's you. I'm not saying that's you. I'm, are you saying I'm No, wrong? no, no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that drunk. Uh, <laughs> you sound what, 15, 16? No, I'm kidding. Oh, uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh I that's probably shooting a little. I'm getting a shake of the head over here. I'm getting the director cut, <laughs> cut, cut. Maybe um, legal, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying. All right. Anyway, I'm not gonna keep it. <laughs> Once moving. you're in a hole, okay. stop digging. All right, moving on. Yeah, um, yeah. The the point being that they were recovering from say hip fractures and things of this type. They could not. Right. They could not impose any any erratic forces as reflected in say mm-hmm. a force plate. Right. Where they're lifting a weight with momentum and going from mm-hmm. zero to 120 to X. So I think that right. very slow tempo or slow cadence lifting 
is mm-hmm. uh, particularly helpful when recovering from injuries. And in this particular case, in my case, I am doing this as mm-hmm. well. Uh, when you cool. limit your cadence to 10 seconds up, 10 seconds down, you are, are going to be using lighter weights by necessity yeah. to do that, particularly yeah, yeah. if you're aiming for, let's just say, seven to 10 repetitions to temporary muscular failure. And all that means right. is you're no longer able to pull it up, right? Or right. contract yeah, yeah. the muscle, shorten the muscle. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, there's, I think it's Doug McGuff. I may be getting this wrong, uh, but Body by Science is mm-hmm. a book that discusses this at some length. Uh, the Four Hour Body okay. discusses it as well, but Body by Science, I'm just doing a quick search here for you, is uh, it is Doug McGuff, M C G U F F. And okay. uh, there's also the Super Slow, uh, I believe it's a company, maybe an organization that uh, emphasizes very specifically this, this type of slow cadence lifting. And for recovery purposes, I think it is extremely flexible and you can, it allows okay. you to work around injuries in a meaningful way. So those are, those are a few of my thoughts. It, in addition to that, you can add, yeah. we're talking about resistance training, but you could add mm-hmm. stretching protocols that are mm-hmm. uh, strengthening at the same time, meaning they're not limited to passive long duration stretching. And that would okay. in, that would include programs like gymnastic bodies, which was created by Coach Chris Summer, former right. uh, national team coach for men's gymnastics. Uh, I am currently incorporating some of that as well, and I'm pretty messed up at the moment. But those are the things that I am reincorporating uh, at at the moment. Okay, and uh, those are the primaries that come to mind. Okay. Cool, man. Yeah. And uh, let's see. What else? Uh, Now, you're dealing with the disc and any other injuries that uh, are particularly problematic for you? Um, I mean, I have like I have an ongoing knee condition that I've just had basically since I was um, like 10 years old, which is the chondromalacia of the patella. But it's been better for a long time. Like I've been able to run and stuff like that, but the cervical disc disc bulge, um, was quite major. Like I was in the hospital for it, um, with a pinched nerve and, you know, like, um, like eight weeks of physiotherapy, well, no, like three months of physiotherapy and 18 months. Um, um, uh, I'm looking at an 18 month uh, healing process and I'm, eight months into that right now. So, uh, that is the primary. It just, it's sort of completely threw me for a loop because most of the things that I did as, uh, to work out, it have just, uh, been shut down. So how did you, how did that disc bulge happen? Do you know, was it an acute event or was it something else? Uh, it was, well, it was an acute event when it happened. Like it was one night, like I ended up in the ER because, um, it went out far enough to pinch a nerve. What was um, the, what instigated that? Um, my one-year-old son was sleeping on my chest and I was crunched against the backboard, the Oof. headboard, Ouch. <laughs> um, kids which are vicious. was not the first time that, <laughs> yes, they are. And that was not the first time that's happened. Um, so what they think is that it was sort of like a buildup over time that it had been gradually 
bulging more and more. And then it was just one night, it finally just completely slipped out. So, so it wasn't a specific thing. It was, yeah, called being a mom. Yeah. Full (laughs) contact sport, that one. Yeah. The the cervical, of course, I'm very, very conservative when it comes to any type of cervical issues because you're dealing with nerves that then affect things like respiration and yeah heart yeah like uh, i still don't have i still don't have feeling in part of my thumb so. yeah so i would i would <laughs> yeah. take it slow whether that is yeah uh, and certainly get cleared by your your gp but mm-hmm. I think that extremely slow cadence lifting and swimming mm-hmm. would probably be my go-to's as well as some degree of controlled stretching program that incorporates strength building which is effectively mobility okay. as coach summer would describe it. So the ability to exhibit strength at the end ranges, not just passively move through them. Uh, Those those, those would be my recommendations for now, but I'm no doctor, I'm no trainer, but uh, that's what I'm prescribing myself. Okay. And and the walking. Very, and the walking. Very, God, and the walking. Okay, very, yes. very underrated. If you need something to do while walking and you're sick of my voice haunting you in your dreams <laughs> because of my podcast, podcast, no, you can listen to Hardcore History. <laughs> hardcore History is the way, oh, to, okay. is the way to go. I was going to ask you what your recommendations oh, are. Oh, yeah. Hardcore History, podcast. start with Wrath of the Cons. If you can't find that for whatever reason, Ooh. Prophets of Doom is a good episode as well. I think that's still available for free. But uh, the Wrath, Wrath of the Cons is worth purchasing if you have to. Okay. Cool. Yeah, my husband is obsessed with podcasts. Like, like obsessed. Oh yeah. And well, Dan, Dan who? Yeah, he'll go Dan off the Carlin. rails. He'll go off the rails with Dan Carlin. Then, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, he's already obsessed with Dan Carlin. So there you go. There you go. He, he <laughs> but can, I'm sort he, of like only a couple of podcasts. Oh yeah. I'll, well, then he can he can I'll, convert you to Dan Carlin. Okay. Yeah. Blueprint for Armageddon. Oh, that's, that's, yeah. That's a good one. That's a long series. Uh, my 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 favorite is probably Wrath of the Cons, but I started with Prophets of Doom. If you start with Prophets of Doom, which okay. I believe is available for free, just give it like 15 minutes. It's a very, there's a lot of foreplay involved. It takes a long time to warm up, but then, okay. it, then it gets really, really good. So just be patient. Okay. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully that is, hopefully that is helpful. And totally. uh, yeah. I wish you all the best and good luck with uh, recovering from your injuries. Yeah, same to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, submitting Hello, your invalid. name. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Have a good night. Watch out for those you one-year-olds. Watch out, they're vicious. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they're worth it too. <laughs> All right, bye. Okay, bye. Oh, hi, is this Giovanna? Yes. <laughs> is this Sam? <laughs> this is Tim. Good evening. I don't know what time it is where you are. Where are you? I am in Switzerland, in Luzern, and it's four eleven in the morning. Wow! <laughs> up for the cow, yeah, up to yeah, milk wow. the cows. Well, <laughs> I am uh, oh, no. <laughs> glad to chat with you. Thanks for staying up or waking up so early. And yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be up this early for I for not for a lot of people. Of well, I am honored and flattered. How can I help? What uh, what might I be able to answer for you? So I uh, I was wondering, I mean, before I saw the, the article you posted a few hours before the drunk dial thing about uh, studying languages, but now I have another question related to that article. Um, how about studying a few different languages at the same time? Mm-hmm. Which languages do you want to study at the same time? 
Well, I'm actually, right now I'm in Switzerland. So uh, I lived in U.S. for a few years. And so I kind of got my English to some level, some nice level. And now I want to get my German to that same level, academic level. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also studying French. And I mean, I kind of know some French and Italian and um, Hungarian. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. of Hung course, Hungarian is tougher course, than those other ones, I think. Yeah, for sure. And of course, I'm not going to do them all at the same time. But I noticed, for instance, I'm studying like French and uh, German at the same time. And I don't know, I try to do some Hungarian in the meantime, and I get kind of I get the words confused sometimes and I'm, now I'm thinking maybe I should just you know focus on one language like how if you learn languages in a short amount of time how do you I don't know uh, uh, when you have to perform or like talk that language how do you not confuse it with others yeah if, I don't know no I'll, I think you, you learn them if you learn them at in, roughly in the same some, period of time. Yeah. Yeah. There, so there are yeah. a few really interesting questions here. I'll make a couple of uh, recommendations off the bat. There's one, it's a bit dense. There are some things to be taken from it called The Loom of Language. This is a very thick book. It's in English, which might be worth looking at. There's also a book called In Other Words, just for people out there, since people will be listening to this, who may not think as adults they're well-equipped to learn languages called In Other Words, which is co-authored by someone called named Hakuta, H-A-K-U-T-A. There are a few approaches that I've used. I actually have an entire folder on my computer that I've kicked forward since 2005 on language learning, and it includes a bit on this just from my own notes that I took in 2004, 2005, when I was studying Spanish and German and a few other languages at roughly the same time within the same three-month period. Mm -hmm. My approach has been, first and foremost, to focus on dialogue whenever possible so that you are refining your conversational abilities and idioms, idiomatic use of the language. Uh, instead of reading, say, in uh, many classrooms, they use newspapers and things of that type. So my two of the tools that I use for simultaneously reviewing one language and learning a new language, in other words, I don't... I would not recommend going from ground zero in two languages simultaneously. I think that's very difficult. And uh, in yeah, fact, that's in, for in, sure. And in fact, <laughs> yeah. the closer they are, the harder it's going to be. So for instance, if you're studying, what is your native language? Serbian. Serbian. Okay. So I actually had a Serbian yeah. roommate in Berlin. Really? Yeah. <laughs> she was, she was great. She spoke so. she she spoke great German, so it's not impossible. But she <laughs> and she made fun of me actually for the approach I'm about to describe. There's a there there are two different tools I use. One is movies, but uh, I can explain specifically how. The second is comic books. And there are to be more precise, a number of comic books that are translated into multiple languages, uh, they tend to be Japanese. So for instance, One Piece, there's a comic called One Piece. And if I look at my wall, I have uh, One Piece on one of my bookshelves in four or five different languages. I also do that, uh, did that for Cowboy Bebop, that's another comic book, and a few others. What I would do is say I had developed 
a decent level of, uh, in this case, Spanish first, and then I went to no, I'm sorry, German first, and then I went to Sp- uh, went to Spanish speaking countries like Panama and so on. I wanted to review my German to consolidate it and uh, give it more sticking power, but I wanted to learn. Spanish as my new language. What I would do is I would have two versions of the same volumes of that comic book. So let's just say they have one piece volume one, two, three, four, five. I would buy one, two, three, four, five in Spanish, in German, and in English. And then I had, of course, electronic dictionaries and things like that. So I would read the comic in my new target language. And if I didn't understand something, I would go to the same page the same frame, the same sentence in the last language that I studied. So in this case, I was reading in Spanish. And then if I didn't understand something, I would go back to German and I would look at the comic book in the same frame. And the first volume is going to take you forever. It might take you a few weeks, Mm -hmm. but within two or three months, you will probably be going through a volume in, let's just say six to 12 hours. You'll be very, very fast. And Comic books, like I mentioned, are one of the tools. The other is movies. Now, in the case of, say, learning, I'm just going to use an example that a lot of readers will identify with because they are in English-speaking countries, Spanish. A lot of people who try to learn Spanish will watch movies in Spanish with English subtitles. That is only appropriate for very high levels of proficiency. I think it is much more helpful because if you mishear something, you'll make mistakes. If you don't quite catch something, you will also make mistakes and you can't look it up. But if you watch, for instance, movies you know very well with subtitles in your target language, then you can make very, very, very fast progress. So I used um, (laughs) Die Hard, for instance, the first, (laughs) dating myself a little bit, to learn uh, not only Japanese uh, at points, but also Chinese and to review. So that helped me with the writing systems, but it also helped me with idiom. It helped me with conversation, etc. just like the comic books. So those are a few of the recommendations that I would make. Uh, the, the post that you saw, I'm not sure which language learning post it was. Uh, Benny Lewis, who's uh, L-E-W-I-S, who, whose nickname is the Irish Polyglot, is also worth looking into. Uh, he has some very interesting approaches and he speaks many, many languages. Uh, so he would also be, I think, a good resource to ping on Twitter or elsewhere. So, and what do you think about like listening to the music and translating it? Uh, Would you surround yourself completely with some language like, you know, put your phone on Spanish, for instance, or, you know, do things like that to kind of get into that world or... Yeah, no, I can tell you. So my approach, and there are many different approaches, there are different ways to skin this cat, as we would say (laughs) in English. Mm -hmm. I don't know where we got that from, by the way. But anyway, I suppose old middle English, we liked skinning cats. But the point I was going to make is that you have to find an approach that works for you. There are different approaches. My preference is not to do immersion unless I am in the country. I think it's too much work. I would rather bust my ass and try to get an extra week in country where I can immerse myself 24-7 in a real environment as opposed to simulating it here. So I do not change the settings on my phone. I've tried all that. I find it more inconvenient than helpful and it's more inclined in my case to make me frustrated and quit. So 
There are, however, people who have become very, very good at, for instance, Japanese. There's a site called All Japanese All the Time, A-J-A-T-T. And uh, this young guy became incredibly good at Japanese by doing exactly what you just described. Benny Lewis, I believe, uses internet radio very much for the same reason, uh, this this sort of uh, simulated immersion environment. But I've never done that. I, I find it too frustrating uh, to stumble in the beginning in that particular way. I would prefer to take, for instance, that time and apply it to doing Skype video sessions with someone who can help me work on pronunciation to get my pronunciation as dialed as possible before I go into a native environment. Uh, My general progression would be uh, pronunciation with set phrases that are very useful. So memorizing, say, 20 to 50 set phrases that are high frequency that you can use all the time. Then moving to, say, present tense, original sentence construction, and using auxiliary, uh, what are called auxiliary verbs or helping verbs. So, for instance, in <clears throat> it's probably true in um, it's probably true in French. I don't speak French. Uh, it is true in German. It's certainly true in Spanish. You can set, you can learn the conjugations, uh, if you know what I mean, the declinations for yeah. for yeah. the verbs to want, to need. Uh, let's say should, for instance, there are a handful of them. And that allows you to then learn the infinitives of all of the other verbs, basically, and put them at the end. So if you, in, in other words, if you, if you just learn to say, I want, you want, he wants, she wants, they want, we want, etc., then you can add to eat, to read, uh, whatever it might be. And in, in, by mastering those auxiliary, auxiliary verbs, which is something that I learned from a guy named Michelle Thomas indirectly through his materials, M-I-C-H-E-L-T-H-O-M-A-S, you can amass hundreds of verbs, uh, but only learn the conjugations for five or six, say. That is a cheat that allows you to make a lot of progress really quickly. Um, and then I would work on basic grammar, but... Uh, past that point, you need to be amassing vocabulary at a pretty rapid clip. Um, so I use flashcards also from, and I prefer physical flashcards at this point. There are good programs like Anki. Uh, Duolingo is fantastic overall for everything. Uh, but I use flashcards, physical flashcards from a company called VizEd, V-I-S hyphen E-D dot com. Uh, so those- uh, yeah, I read that in your article about, yeah, the flashcards. Yeah, I, I love the the things that you can touch and see and write and yeah. things like that. Yeah, so yeah think, it works better with me. Yeah, I think uh, so, that, that's my that's my particular preference anyway. I I do apologize. I probably should jump off in a bit just because I have to uh, call quite a few people. But um, I'm happy to answer one more thing. Okay, so how do you get to like a a much higher level? For instance, I'm like. I have really good basic basics of German right now, mm-hmm. and I want to get to like academic level, like B two, for instance, or maybe C one. Uh, what's your? I don't know. How how do you get completely into completely fluent in one language in some shorter period of time? 
Yeah, this is a longer. If you have all those. <laughs> no, I understand. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a longer conversation, but I would say that you can study for the test, right? So it would be dictated in large yes. part by the test and the certification that you were looking for. Uh, this is something that I studied for in Buenos Aires when I was trying to get my advanced level Spanish certificate, for instance. You can study for the test. Uh, if you want to try to use non-teachers, in other words, use a tandem format, that's what they call it in German anyway, where you are teaching someone your language while they're teaching you theirs, which may or may not work for you, but perhaps you help them with English and they help you with German. Uh, I have found translation of very specific sentences that are preparing for you the, preparing you for the test to be most effective. That's probably beyond the scope of this conversation. It requires would require a lot of explanation, but most native mm-hmm. speakers cannot teach their native language. So you you have to enable them with very clear instructions. And uh, the best way to do that that I have found is trading translations in areas that you have already identified you need help with. So effectively, all they're doing is saying, that sounds funny or that sounds correct. This is how you should fix it. That's all they're doing is is giving you, for instance, a sentence in English. So let's just say they're of an equal level in English as you are in German. And you might be working on the subjunctive case, right? This is a more advanced skill. So you're Mm -hmm. saying, if I had a million dollars then I would do blah, 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 blah. The hypothetical case, this is yeah, the subjunctive. Yeah. You know, in German, in Spanish, it's a more advanced skill. Or uh, reported speech, you might be doing, uh, he said to her that she should do this, this, and this. It's a more advanced uh, sort of linguistic construction. Then they would give it to you in English and you would translate it into German. So A, you would correct their English so they get a benefit out of it. And then you would try to produce the same sentence in German and they would correct it, right? But you're practicing for the test in either case. Um, so yeah. ho- hopefully that so helps. There's no, yeah, there's no cheating uh, in that. Well, there are cheats in the sense that you, can, yeah. that, that you can use mnemonic devices. And uh, I think Ed Cook, uh, C-O-O-K-E, is a good guy to look to for that. He has a company called Memrise, M-E-M-R-I-S-E, uh, ultimately, I think you can do it in a very short period of time. Certainly three to six months is more than enough time. I think you can, as opposed to three to six years, uh, but you yeah. have, you, but you have to have the deliberate practice focusing on the right things. So, okay. so hopefully so, that helps, but I, I will let you get to sleep since I need to get drinking and, uh, smiling and dying. Okay. <laughs> what are you what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking Hendrix Gin and Canada Dry Club Soda, which is probably bottled in Hoboken, New Jersey or something like that. But it says Canada Dry. Don't sue me, Canada Dry. Uh <laughs> yeah. So good luck with good luck with your German. Uh viel Spaß and uh and sleep and sleep well maybe I'll talk to you again soon yeah have a good night Tim nice talking to you and all the best alright thank you bye 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 hi is this Samantha oh my god is this Tim Ferriss it is Tim Ferriss ah, this is the best day ever I'm so excited hello <laughs> hey how are you where are you at the moment 
Um, I'm in my house in Ottawa. Ottawa, good town. That's that's Shopify country over there. It is. Um, actually, I just found out we we're like one degree of separation. I've been super excited about it since I found out. Sweet. Yeah, you guys have the yeah. uh, the coolest place to ice skate I think I've ever seen. That gigantic. What is it? I guess it's a river. What is it? River reservoir? That it's a canal. Canal that's like eight miles yes. or whatever long that you can scoot around. What are those things called? Uh, help me out here. Not badger. Uh, something tails. They're oh, beaver tails. Beaver tails. Can you explain for yes. all of the Yanks in the audience what and everyone who's <laughs> non-Canadian, what is a beaver tail? Uh, it's basically just fried dough smothered in butter and then topped with sugary toppings. So it's, delicious. It's so good and so bad for you. And it's only proper to eat in the winter while you're on the canal skating with hot chocolate. Exactly. Like you should have cold hands warming up with like beaver tail and some, and some hot chocolate. It's fantastic. Oh, God, that sounds so good. So how can I help? I am, uh, well on my way to inebriated and ready to self-immolate. So please... <laughs> help me to destroy myself. No, I'm kidding. Uh, what, what can I, what can I, what can I answer for you? Um, well, I have recently took some advice from you and I quit my job and I really hated what I was doing and who I was with and all that stuff. And I went out on my own and somehow became an actress totally accidentally and a model also by accident, not what I was looking for. Um, but I also own this little lifestyle brand and I want to work on viral marketing. So okay. I'm really trying to destruct and understand this whole like elements of viral marketing and how I can get more. So I just did my first Facebook live video, uh, not yesterday, but the day before. And I got myself more than 2000 views, which I was pretty proud of, but Congrats. I haven't, like, I haven't been able to convert it. Right. So I don't, I haven't made sales from this yet. Mm -hmm. So viral marketing is a very, I think commonly misunderstood and also overused term that doesn't make it a valuable concept. There are a few, there are a few people I would recommend taking a look at who have discussed this quite a bit. Uh, two who come to mind, and I'm sure there are many others since my memory is somewhat impaired at the moment. One is Andrew Chen. Uh, Andrew Chen is currently on the growth team at Uber, but for a very long time wrote about this type of thing. Yeah. The second, and actually now I'm thinking of three, the second is a guy named Andy Johns. I think it's Johns, plural. It may be singular, uh, but a very, very smart guy about such things. Let me just do a quick Google machine search. Yeah, Andy Johns. And uh, he's currently the vice president of product at Wealthfront, but has worked at many, many different companies in the growth teams at Facebook, Twitter, Quora, etc. Uh, and let me think here. The third person now I've displaced because I thought of Andy. <laughs> I may come up with the third person, but those are two who are very good to start with. Uh, the okay, the a, a foundational essay that I would suggest reading, and this is free, which will give you a, a I think a good core principle to keep in mind when doing any of this is One Thousand True Fans by Kevin Kelly. That is on his site kk.org. If you just search One Thousand True Fans, it should pop right up. But the basic idea is. 
for viral marketing to work, and he doesn't use that term, I don't think, but you need a core group of super fans, true fans, to recommend what you do to other people. That is pretty much it. And uh, I, I think that to echo something that Seth Godin said on my podcast, you know, to go big, you really want to initially aim very, very narrow. And um, to that end, one thing that may be helpful is reading a particular chapter in a particular book. Um, very short. This will take you like 15 minutes. It's called The Law of Category. That is the chapter in a book called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And some of the examples are outdated. Uh, I would read this in the original edition. Uh, Andy Johns, by the way, if you want to follow him on Twitter, is, <laughs> I just found this, at I bring traffic, <laughs> which is a pretty good handle for such a fella. Uh, very, very, very smart guy. Um, yeah, he has, he, has, he has a lot to say that's worth listening to. Um, the the, ca- the uh, law of category chapter will reiterate a lot of what you would find. And I think these are complementary in a book called, uh, I believe it is just the Blue Ocean Strategy. And a lot of it is superfluous, but I'd say 40% of it is very, very useful. And it, it discusses effectively how to niche yourself properly so that you are the number one or number two player. And if you're not the number one or number two player, you have to choose a different niche or create a different category. So those are a few starting points. I make no claims to be a viral marketing expert, but I do think I'm pretty good at getting word of mouth. Absolutely. Uh, And I view them as very, very close cousins. Beautiful. Can we talk about um, doing handstands? (laughs) Doing handstands? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I would say I, I'm at best 10% qualified to give advice on handstands, but yes, I'm happy to attempt to lie, cheat, and steal my way through giving you a legitimate answer. <laughs> okay, so I'm working on it. I want to get away from the wall, and it, uh-huh. that's what I'm having trouble with. And I know it's definitely me just being a little bit afraid, but... Um, my former career was being a barber and I had a lot of repetitive tension and I couldn't do a lot of that type of work because it hurt too much. So now that I'm away from that line of work, I'm super strong all of a sudden. Uh, but I'm just having a hard time with the balance part, I guess. And I'm, I'm just having a hard time figuring it out. Okay. So a few things I would recommend, and I'm borrowing from a guy named coach summer, uh, Chris Summer, S-O-M-M-E-R, who I interviewed on my podcast. So I definitely recommend listening to him because he is your handstand master. A few exercises that helped me very greatly. Uh, One would be, and you're going to have to look these up, an exercise called cast wall walks. This is going from a handstand facing towards the wall into a push-up by walking your feet down the wall and back up. Key, however, is maintaining a hollow and protracted position. And this is discussed in my podcast with him, so I won't belabor it here. But protracted really means your shoulders are pushed forward. So if you imagine hugging a telephone pole, uh, in effect, uh, your shoulders should be in that position. It's extremely exhausting. It's it's actually best to do at the end of a workout. Uh, The other is... Uh, well, two things really in combination, something called hollow body rocks. 
and you can you can look that up and then tuck hops tuck hops are where you're you're hopping into a handstand position but your thighs are basically against your abdomen you're in a tuck position almost like you're doing a front flip or imagining someone doing a front flip i.e front tuck in a diving competition or something like that where you're completely compressed into this fetal position your legs are going to be in that position while you're maintaining the handstand and then you bring your feet down when you lose your balance and then you jump and tuck back up you hop back up into that tuck position tuck hops are really really helpful and uh I would encourage, it's very, it's challenging to do handstand practice on a soft surface, but um, another exercise that I have found helpful, and you can, you can do this on a mat, is where you walk, you're effectively walking the length of a mat. And I did this exercise with a coach named Sam. She was great at a place called Athletic Playground in Emeryville for people in the Bay Area who want to check it out. Uh, and it involved keeping your elbow, basically imagine you have your arms, you're standing up, you have your arms overhead extended, and you raise your shoulders as high as you possibly can by your ears. Okay, you're going to maintain that the entire time. And you would then place your hands down, kick one leg up so your legs are scissored, switch them and bring the opposite leg down, if this makes any sense at all. <laughs> and then you stand back up and you take another step and you repeat until you get to the opposite end of the room. But I would say to keep things simple, since we don't have video on this um, this audio program, that uh, you should focus on hollow body rocks and tuck hops. I think those are two very good tools. And then at the end of a workout, if you are feeling ambitious, you can try cast wall walks. All of this stuff is borrowed from coach Chris Sommer. Thank you so much for calling me. I want other people to have a chance, so I'm not going to keep you, but thank you so much. It was awesome. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks for, uh, okay. thanks for spending the time. Hey, anytime you're in Ottawa, call me. <laughs> <laughs> Rock on. I'll go Ottawa. All right. Have a nice night. Thank I, you. I will. <laughs> thanks. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. Hi, is this Ashley? It is, Tim. Uh, Ashley, yes, this is Tim. How are you? That's good. It's pretty hysterical. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am. You're in California. Or no, you have California. Totally. Sweet. Uh, yeah. No, I'm actually in uh, Annapolis, Maryland right now. Ah. Um, so I was asleep. I've got a 5 a.m. train to Manhattan. <laughs> wow. Well, but I'm getting up to do this. So let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Well, good crabs in Maryland. I like uh, I like Maryland yeah. crabs. Yeah, uh, I live in D.C., but yeah. <laughs> though that's that's the right crabs. way to do it, right? I mean, you live, in D- you live in Maryland or you live in Virginia, and then you hop, skip, and jump into D.C. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. How can I help or try to help? Yeah, you know, I think it's fascinating, right? So I'm struggling with, I, I'm personally not struggling, but I'm struggling with, um, and definitely from a career standpoint, this concept of what I call infobesity, right? And I think there's a lot of conversation around it in the, I don't know if you've heard it used in like sort of the Silicon Valley area in the tech space, but in the nutrition space, what I've been seeing definitely instead of like introducing people to how helpful and helpful nutrition, you know, their nutrition is for their body, it's really this like, wow, we have so much information. And so, you know, I use the term infobesity and that we're all suffering from infobesity regardless of our health status. And, you know, it's drowning the quality of information, right? So that's a larger, like, 
more of a country conversation. But I find where you are and uh, a certain segment of my uh, clients, and, and I also just find it like an interesting dilemma, right? If you're interested in experimenting, if you're interested in taking it to the next level, if you're interested in really understanding how your body works and what you can do with it, that dance between information and even like finding new things, you know, and learning about yourself with it being too much, right? And sort of um, not the orthorexia that people are talking about, this pursuit of perfect, but really just this idea of doing, of taking in so much information or in a certain sense, guinea pigging yourself. So what made me think about it was I absolutely love the podcast that you just did on the rapamycin and metformin. And I've heard one of those uh, presentations and it was so interesting because the doctors and scientists were saying, oh yeah, well, at, the, at the conclusion of which is, yeah, we don't take those, you know? And I thought one guy's piece was really good because he's like, so, you know, I'm not diabetic, I, I'm healthy. Um, and so I think the piece for me is, and this is very much to your audience or when I'm, you know, working with people more in, in the performance space is where is that space of saying like, you know, discovery and experimentation is fascinating, but at the same time, I actually am healthy and I am right now, you know, doing well. So, um, let's not shake that up. Right. You know, so let's not, um, let's not bring in more information or the newest thing and, and the acquisition of knowledge could be different than like testing it out on yourself. So I was curious for you personally, how do you vet that space? You know, how do you decide what you are, are willing to do versus turn around and say, that's super cool. I'm fascinated by it, but I'm not going to do that. And then the other part is when you're thinking about what you deliver for your audience, where do you draw that line in terms of vetting information? Sure. All right. So there's a lot to tackle here. Let me take. Yeah, it. totally. No, 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 no. It's like... good. No, 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 no. I like talking okay. about this stuff. So I, I mean, part one is how do I think about my own experimentation and what do I decide to undertake or not undertake? So how do I vet that? And part two is what do I choose to convey to my audience or attempt to teach, and how do I vet that? Uh, let me have some gin first. Hold on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So what kind of gin? Uh, this is Hendrix. I, I'm a big fan mm. of Hendrix gin. Uh, very simple. Hendrix and soda. I'm a Good. simple, simple nice. man. Simple man. But um, this is probably doing the opposite of rapamycin at the moment. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. So the the first part is a maybe a correction of a misperception not from you but from a lot of people i i think that mm. i'm very often viewed as a uh daredevil risk-taking cutting-edge experimenter and i don't view myself that way in the sense that most of what i test has a lot of literature to uh, elucidate at least a plausible mechanism of action and a uh, directional error of causation. That That is a fancy way of saying that if I am considering, for instance, using a substance, whether it be rapamycin or metformin or otherwise, there is a lot on PubMed, uh, on clinicaltrials.gov, et cetera, that I can use to determine the potential upside and potential downside of an experiment. Uh, that's not true for all things, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, I am not 
the, the you know the first of a hundred monkeys to try something. <laughs> I am mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of looking at underexplored applications or off-label uses of well mm. test, of well t- tested substances, diets, exercise regimens. Does that make sense? Uh, totally. Yeah. So, for instance, I may look at resveratrol and its potential applications to endurance instead of longevity. I may look at uh, exogenous ketones, like I have keto force and a bunch of weird ketone esters in sketchy, crazy-looking Breaking Bad containers in my refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> probably don't need to be in my refrigerator. But the point being. Uh, I am looking at their potential application in my life to anti-inflammation and breath hold times. Uh, they're unrelated, but those those, huh. those those two particular areas, even though they're not explicitly designed for those things or sold for those things. Uh, yet, at the same time, I have a a good understanding, I would say, or a sufficient understanding of the potential downsides. I think I understand the worst case scenarios in taking these, at least in the short term. So, so th- those are for me personally. I, I try not to be. I try to be on the the dull edge when it comes to compound selection. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about, say drugs or different types of food supplements, et cetera. I try to be on the cutting edge of new applications of known substances, training regimens, diets, et cetera. Uh, Mm. So for instance, you take the ketogenic diet that was originally developed primarily for epileptic children. This is not Mm -hmm. very well known. The Charlie Foundation, for instance, has done some great work in this area. And I have very close friends of friends who have stopped horrific, Mm -hmm. uh, say, uh, epileptic episodes where they're having seizures tens or hundreds of times a day by modifying their diets. It was originally designed for that application, but then we started looking at body recomposition and then we start looking at, say, military applications of exogenous ketones to people who need to use rebreathers or something crazy and esoteric like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, As far as what gets conveyed to my audience, I really try to uh, ameliorate the problem presented by infobesity, right? And uh, that was the first, you know, this is actually the first time I've heard mm-hmm. the term, but information overload, I think, is mm-hmm. is often a consequence of striving for perfection instead of good enough. And I'll give you a perfect example of that. Uh, I do think that paleo or the ketogenic diet have some tremendous applications. I also think that strict paleo, just like strict veganism, or the the ketogenic diet done properly because it's a very binary mm-hmm. it's a very binary diet are going to have at best a ten to fifteen percent compliance rate meaning mm-hmm. of every hundred people I might try to convey the the uh, prescription for these diets two of every hundred at best I'm looking at fifteen people fifteen people who succeed that is not acceptable to me I think that there is probably a smarter way to convert people to a more intelligent way and healthful way of eating and for me that is the slow carb diet the slow carb diet may be viewed as a like 
poor man's option compared to these others, but I know that I can get a much higher compliance rate. We're talking 50-60%. And it's the gateway drug to these more uh, strict and unforgiving diets that may have a marginally better outcome, but a huge, a, a vastly greater abandonment rate. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so for me, the question first and foremost is, what is the likelihood of injury, right? I want to minimize the likelihood of injury, which is why I tend to avoid or at least provide great disclaimers for anything involving, for instance, uh, breathing exercises or breath hold training. Because the downside mm-hmm. is you have a shallow water blackout and you die. It's a very, very mm-hmm. significant downside risk. Uh, so what is the downside? If it's too great for a for too high a percentage of my readership or listenership, I don't share it. It's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, trying to follow the Hippocratic Oath to the extent that I can, even though I'm not a medical doctor. The second is, what is the adherence rate? What is the likely adherence rate? So for me, the priorities are, like per thousand people or per hundred people, what percentage will actually follow what it is that I am prescribing? Doesn't matter how good it is if the adherence rate is abysmally low, right? So adherence, number one, how many people are going to do this? Effectiveness, number two, does it produce the results desired and promised? Mm -hmm. Number three, efficiency. Is it efficient in its use of time and other resources, capital, et cetera, right? So those those are the three check boxes, or I should say gates through which I pass in my head all of my potential prescriptions to my audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have safety, adherence, efficacy, and efficiency. That's that's how I think about it. And going through those check boxes in that order. I tend to provide a very minimal dose of information for any particular first step. You can always invite complexity later, and you can make the complexity digestible to a very high percentage of people who have already gone through the minimal and intermediate. But if you try to impose that upon someone who is just opening their mind to a novice level of understanding, you're 99% out of 100 are going to fail. So that's that's how I think about it. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think one of the things you do in that way is take uh, my sense has been from the guests and from having listened for quite some time is really uh, t- taking that information um, and number one offering it in a in a targeted at minimum targeted or a hyper targeted way, and then the second part is really providing how to actually implement it. And I think that that's what's missing from a lot of the information that's out there is that it's not delivered. You know, we know that information, more information is not the answer. It's really how to uh, implement it into your life, into one's life that's going to actually result in action. And and I do see that. I think the other part is I think your guests also have a level of credibility, either from personal, both, I think, from personal experience and then also uh, the professional side. So it's it's pretty fascinating. Um, Well, it's super cool. I, you know, for me, I've I've just, I, I think it's a, it's an area that I'm really passionate about because I think we are definitely overloading the brain, which obviously has such a um, connection to the gut. And so we just see people that are not moving forward or moving forward successfully. And I think your example about paleo or 
certainly in the ketogenic space is is really uh, um, spot on. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. No, I appreciate it. I, I think that people can do more than they believe possible. They just can't do it all at the same time. And so what I try to focus on a lot is what I consider the sort of magic ingredient that is very widely neglected, which is sequencing. Mm-hmm. In other words, you can choose the right information. So you do an 80-20 analysis and you figure out which 20% of the information or exercises or foods or whatever it might be, supplements produce 80% of the results you're looking for, changes in biomarkers, whatever the hell it might be. But putting those in a logical order or a progression where you get maximum adherence, that is really, for me, the secret sauce. I spend a lot of time thinking about that. All right, we have 10, thing, we have 10 things out of 100 that are disproportionately important. How can I put these 10 things in a particular order so that for every 100 people who start with step one, I have the maximum number who get through step 10? And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate to say it, but most of the instructional information out there does not give a shit about this or they just don't take the time to really consider it. They put the onus on the learner and I think that's a problem. And I, I think as uh, you know, Eric Weinstein, who I had on the podcast, really brilliant PhD uh, physicist, mathematician, he said, we talk about learning disabilities all the time. We never talk about teaching disabilities. I think if you look, mm-hmm. if you look at most oh, non- fascinating. Yeah, I yeah. miss that. Oh, that is great. Oh, okay, yeah. He's great. He's, great. He's, yeah. He, he's great. That's a fun episode. And uh, if, if you look at the nonfiction books out there that are prescriptive, i.e. how-to books of some sort, if you look at classes, if you look at the teaching that fails, it is very often because they don't think about this progression. They just take the 10 things and they've identified what's important, but they teach them willy-nilly in some order that is convenient for them, but not a logical progression for the learner that minimizes quitting uh, or overwhelm. So that is that is how I think about a lot of this. Hopefully that is helpful in some fashion. It totally is. And I, I think it's going to be moving forward to continue to address this topic and work to help people. You know, I think I've done a less stellar job than you just did. So this is helpful to me from a practitioner standpoint. I love that teachability piece. But um, the other part is, you know, just sort of looking at when you ask someone whether or not something is applicable from a nutrition standpoint, it's, you know, it really is, who are you right now? And, you know, I often... I have like great examples of, of people who have jumped on things and, you know, who, because it's not applicable to them right now. I had funny example was when the study that came out about uh, fish oils being problematic for um, prostate or potentially problematic science wasn't great. You know, I had all these emails from people, but you put me on this stuff, you know, should I, should I stop it, et cetera. And then I went through and like 85% of them were women. And I was like, hold on a second. Like if you find your prostate, you know, let me know, you know, that kind of a thing. So (laughs) I think we, you know, that's like the macro example, but on a smaller scale, I think people are trying to really figure out what's that sequencing, what should they be doing right now? And I think that the more that we can get to that, if that's just, that's awesome. So, um, yeah, really cool. Well, what you should be doing right now is more obvious. So I'm excited to listen to this episode. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the gin. And I am going to uh, 
put myself to sleep because we know that that is uh, that's an important part of the sequencing. But um, <laughs> I really appreciate this. Yeah, yeah, yeah my, a lot my, to think about. No, my pleasure. And I would add one more thing, which is uh, I think that it's important to to make people coachable and improve adherence to to help them develop a basic scientific literacy. So there's yeah. a book. There's a great book called Bad Science that I recommend to mm-hmm. a lot of people by Ben Goldacre. Uh, I did two, one or two appendices in The 4-Hour Body that are related, or actually adaptations and excerpts from this book. Uh, but I think on the, perhaps, one, well, one of the most important concepts in Nav, uh, Navdeep Chandel from the Metformin Rapamycin Conversation mentions, mm-hmm. but the the difference between we won't get into it right now but the difference between relative risk versus absolute risk mm-hmm. i think is really important for people to understand because the media fucks that up constantly so it can it can set off alarms when they don't need to be set off and let things slide when they shouldn't slide at all so i will leave it at that and i'll let you get some sleep yeah. but i awesome. appreciate you taking the time thanks have a great night i appreciate it you too. take care bye bye Marissa, this is Tim Ferriss calling. Good evening. Hello. Wow. Emotion. <laughs> <laughs> well, how are you this evening? Good, good. I've never been so happy to excited to talk to a drug man, but I guess this is the first. <laughs> well, I've been uh, I've never been so excited to be drunk and calling someone in the Bay Area. So here we are. Oh, we, meet at, we meet it. We meet it. Very good. We meet at last. How can I help? Um, well, I have a couple of questions. I'll be fast. I know that you have other ladies to talk to. Um, I, entrepreneur and investor, you're both, and I know they're not mutually excluded, exclusive, but which one would you say that it paid off better for you uh, for a better, freer life? And when I say better, not necessarily money, but experience and abundance of life, uh, that kind of feeling. I would say entrepreneur uh, because... Being an entrepreneur offers you more opportunities and more diverse contexts to expose yourself to being uncomfortable and developing comfort with uncertainty. And I think that having the experience of building something yourself as an entrepreneur, trying to persuade others, trying to negotiate effectively in many different areas makes you makes you a better investor. Uh, more more than practicing investing with other people's money certainly helps you to be a more effective entrepreneur. I think that A, in this case, being an entrepreneur helps you to be a better investor than being an investor, at least in many different contexts, would help you to be a successful entrepreneur. So my answer would be the entrepreneurship. But I should underscore. I, I should. I should just underscore that I don't think everyone should be an entrepreneur. the The idea of starting a company is, I think, romanced and uh, perhaps dramatized to a great extent in the U.S. on the covers of magazines and everything else. And the the mistake that people make, uh, which they can't be faulted for, is their they end up only reading about the success stories and there are a lot of failure stories. They just don't end up being written about generally uh, as cover stories for magazines. And it's a difficult road. You have to have a particular type of, I think, programming and hardwiring 
for it to work. So I, I don't think that everyone should start a company and I don't think that they should feel badly about themselves if they choose a different route. There are many people who have developed incredible skills, built incredible lives and helped to improve the world without ever starting a company of their own. And uh, I think that, th- that it's a matter of embracing and cultivating your own strengths and having this having or developing the self-awareness to identify those uh, and not just doing what is fashionable in this sense, uh, or I should say in in the current day, which is starting a startup. Uh, so I'll get off my soapbox now. Uh, sorry for being so long-winded. It is a, it no, is a side, side effect of the alcohol. Please continue. Uh, that's perfect. No, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, I guess, that's the reason why a lot of us don't do it. Um, and then the next question is, you know, what, you know, do you go with a service or a product? And, you know, there are many choices down the line, but also the alternative of not being an entrepreneur is also boring. So that's kind of, um, you know, tossing up options. And which leads me to the next question. I know that this could go on forever and I don't want to take too much time, but, um, it's so hard to change gears from somebody who, you know, I don't do, I'm not an employee, but, and I can all, I can, I don't say that I'm an entrepreneur either because I don't have a startup company, but somewhere in between I'm trying to change gears. Why is it so difficult to change gears and make the change? And I guess, um, in different words, you know, finding that muse, muse, uh, and I know that I've read your four hour week book, and somehow I get stuck on the information overload. So it's where to start is kind of the question that lingers. Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think that the the fallacy that stops a lot of people, and this is propagated by a lot of media, a lot of keynote speeches, uh, a lot of TV, is that you have to choose one or the other. What I mean by that is people think of employee and entrepreneur as mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they need to quit their full-time job, jump headfirst into the dark water, not knowing the depth and figure out being a full-time entrepreneur. And that's not necessary at all. Uh, I think that the most important chapter in the four hour work week is the chapter on fear setting. Uh mm-hmm and uh, discusses a gentleman named Hans who goes from his legal career to building a surf company in Brazil. But the fear-setting exercise, which is really identifying the worst-case scenarios and how you could recover from them, is more important than goal-setting and smart, you know, the uh, specific, measurable, achievable, blah, blah, blah. I, I think that identifying your where you have the emergency break on and elucidating your specific reasons for being fearful is exceptionally important, A, and then B, realizing that I think the best way to start a company and to become an entrepreneur is to do it in your off hours. Start by developing something in the evenings, on the weekends, and testing it with a very, very small group of people. And once you have traction that you think could supplant or replace your full-time income from your job, whatever that might be, then and only then 
once you've sufficiently proven to yourself and others that you have a product and a market that will pay for that product, do you continue? Uh, I think that the uh, the E Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber is a very good book to read uh, as it relates to product versus service. I know that's not the specific question you asked, but you mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever possible, I think product is easier than service. Uh, they're both hard yeah. to do well, but I think that service inherently has more operator bottleneck and is more likely to leave you feeling like you cannot at any point leave your business alone. And Which is, the, that's what I'm in the service business. That's why I yeah. was talking about that. Yes. I have to be there to service. Yeah, so so I think that the E Myth Revisited is a very good book for you to read because it talks about being a technician versus being a business owner and how to work on your business instead of in your business. I think it's I think it's a very helpful book, uh, and uh, that would be one starting point that I would I think recommend for you just based on the very little <laughs> that I have gleaned right. uh, from what we've talked about so far. Um, so image revisited. That's the name. The e myth. So it's e hyphen myth revisited. The e myth. Oh, the myth. Re- yeah. Exactly. E-myth. By uh, Michael Gerber. G e r b e r. And um, okay, okay. One quick question. One quick question. Um, if you were to do it all over again, what would you change first? Very general question. Yeah. <laughs> no. Know. No. This is a great question, and you know. I have asked a lot of people this question myself, and I'm going to give a very unoriginal answer, but I'm really happy with where I am. I wouldn't change it. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't jinx it. I, I think that uh, if I were to maybe a, maybe a different approach to answering that question is, and it, it might seem like a dodge, but you know, what advice would I give to 30-year-olds in general, right? I'm a 39-year-old guy right now. What advice would I give to my 25, or what advice would I give to a group of 25-year-olds or, or 30-year-olds? And I think the answer is, the answers would include, one, as a, as a meta principle to guide other decisions, you are the average of the five people who you associate with most. So choose mm-hmm. the people you surround yourself with, the people you associate with very, very carefully, which is easier said than done. But I think that's a, that's, mm-hmm. that, that is a principle that overlays many other decisions. Second, uh, learn how to negotiate and persuade. I, th- I think that that is part and parcel with learning to communicate well in a written format. You need to get good at writing uh, and persuading. Uh, the let's see, secrets of power negotiating is one book. Uh, ideally, digested in audio. There, there, there is audio. Uh, that is by it is Richard Dawson, I believe. D a w s o n. I found that exceptionally helpful. Mm-hmm. Getting Past No is another book that I would recommend, which is the more realistic counterpart to Getting to Yes. I won't get into all the history of those two books, but Getting Past No, I think is very mm-hmm. helpful. And uh, there's a book by, I want to say, William Zinsner. I've had too much gin to pronounce that properly, but uh, On Writing Well is the name of the book. It's been celebrated for decades now. I think it had its 25th 
anniversary post-publication a few years ago. On Writing Well is a book that I have revisited several times and found very helpful for written communication. Uh, those would be a few of the things that I would generally recommend and certainly underscore for myself at that age as well. Yeah, and I second that because it's actually the persuasion and the negotiation and I only learned it late in life. So uh, I wish I'd known that before, but um, then I have to catch up now, but uh, it makes sense. Yeah, it takes it practice. Sense. It all takes practice. Very good. Well, I could have done this conversation in Lumfaro, but I don't think it would have been fair to everybody because not everybody will understand that. But I was, I was, <laughs> I would have been excited to talk to, uh, to you in Lumfaro, but bueno, another moment. <laughs> la, la próxima vez, entonces. La próxima vez y que, que estés también en Curda. <laughs> <laughs> bueno, gracias, much, muchísimas gracias. Y bueno, hasta la próxima. Thank you so much for the amazing work and, um, you know, for not letting it get to your head, which is actually very humbling. Well, thank you for taking the time. Nice to speak with you and have a good night and good luck. The same here. Goodbye. Okay, bye-bye. Hi, is this Liz? Yes. Liz, this is Tim Ferriss. How are you? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Are you in Florida? Are you in Florida? You know, I'm actually in Charleston, South Carolina, but I'm from Florida originally. Oh, that's where the tricky phone number comes in. Charleston's great. Have you been? To, <laughs> have you been to Husk by chance? Oh my god! Yes, we love Husk. So 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 good. It had like we went there the month that it, or we tried to go the month that it opened, but it was like booked for that entire oh, yeah. month. We had to Popular. wait. Yeah. Yeah, they mm -hmm. they have more bacon and pig products and butter than you can shake a South Carolina stick at. That place is intense. <laughs> I had brunch there and I was like, all right, I'm not going to eat for the next two weeks. So good though. Very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good, good choice on town. That is a cool town. I've been very, very drunk there before. So it's uh, very <laughs> coincidental that I am all, well on my way right now. Let me stop talking and let me allow you to start talking. What can I answer for you or help you with? Okay, well, I'm quite honored to be talking to you. I'm a longtime listener and reader. Thank you. Um, yeah, this will probably make me an even more insufferable fangirl, according to my friends. Um, so, okay, I want to be a writer. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer. I'm just now allowing myself or giving myself permission to admit that. And I'm actually halfway through The Magic of Thinking Big, which I'm reading per your recommendation. Um, and it's been incredible. It changed my perspective, motivated me. I'm finally writing and creating what I want to create. Um, and I just recently watched your speech that you gave in 2009 called How to Blog Without Killing Yourself. Yeah, I think. yeah. That was from WordCamp. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That WordPress event and um okay so it was super helpful and i know that most of it is still relevant but what i was wondering is now since it was seven years ago i wanted the question the updated or i wanted the updated answer to two questions that are related number one is what is the one piece of really bad advice that you hear people you know repeating a lot that has kind of been accepted as mainstream you know, by the mainstream as good advice or best practice 
And number two, piggybacking off of that, if you had to start your blog again today um, in 2016, what are the top three ways that you would you would grow your readership? Woo, that's some. Those are some. That's some heavy lifting for my blood alcohol content. But let me do it. <laughs> Let's see how okay. I do. All right. So the first one, let me let me try to make this, however, useful instead of just me mentally masturbating with too much booze. So first right. is, are you writing fiction or nonfiction? I'm writing nonfiction. Some of my heroes and influences are people like Glennon Doyle Melton of Monastery or Jenny Lawson of The Bloggist or Lori Duchesne of Tiny Buddha, people like that. Okay. So what kind of stuff are you writing right now? Um, it's mostly essays. I like to say it's creative nonfiction. I, um, have, I feel very much a combination of um, liking to write things like yourself that are very practical um, things you can implement, things that are helpful, but also just loving the art, the magic that is writing um, and, you know, the stringing of words together. So I sure. don't really want to write anything that's just totally flowery and beautiful, but unhelpful. Um, and so I kind of am trying to... Um, to write both. I really identify with what you said in one of your most recent podcasts where um, I just like to write. I write things. Um, I have been writing every day, but I mostly just write things that I. It, it's more painful to keep them inside of me than it is to finally write them down on paper. Yeah, um, that's, yeah. The, that's the good stuff to write. So are you hoping to write books or blog? What is the format that you are currently thinking of? This will affect the advice that I give. Okay. Um, I'm writing a blog. I will say that my hope is to become a traditionally published author because of all the, the, the benefits that I know that that brings. Um, but I am starting with a blog and, um, yeah, and just want to focus on that at least for the next three months. Okay. What is your most popular piece that you have written to date? And that does not mean likes and retweets necessarily. It could just be which have your friends liked the most. But what piece that you've written thus far has proven most popular or to have the best response or that you're happiest with? It could be any any of those or all of those. Um, I wrote a piece that I really like and that I think most people like called why we should all think about death more, um, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Um, <laughs> and, and I also wrote just an ebook that I give away for free called get naked, why the world needs you to be a little more you, which also, um, you know, did pretty well. I think it's been downloaded. I don't know. For me, it did well. It's, been downloaded like 300 times which um you know i thought yeah. was fine for for what i was doing so those two i guess okay uh all right so like the first question was related to bad advice that i've heard given out a lot in uh, yeah the worlds of writing and or publishing is that mm -hmm. fair paraphrase okay yeah, yeah. I just, I, you know, I've been researching a lot and I, there's a lot of bad advice out there and I want to make sure that I steer clear of it. Yeah. All right. So there, there are two that come to mind. Uh, the first I'm actually stealing 
or borrowing okay. from <laughs> Stephen Dubner, who I had on my podcast, uh, and I had a follow up question for him, which I ended up and I ended up putting his answer in uh, the the new book, Tools of Titans. Okay. That's the latest and greatest. Uh, but he, I asked him the same question, and his answer was, write what you know. So you hear that a lot. Write what you know, write what you know, write what you know. Sure. And, and he said, why would I want to write what I know when I know so little? I want to write about the things that I don't understand or know so that I have, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, the excuse to explore and experiment in those new worlds. Why would I want to write about what I know? It's so little of what's out there. And I agree with him about that. If you look at my trajectory and I think why my books have succeeded in part, at least, it's because I do experiments in worlds and in involving things that I have no right to experiment with. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're completely outside of my normal world. And uh -huh. for that reason, it's new to me. It's exciting to me. And guess what? If it's new and exciting to you, there is a decent chance it's going to be new and exciting to your readers. If it is old okay. and hackneyed and a thousand times rehearsed and rehashed and old news to you, that sentiment is going to be conveyed to your readers. So for mm -hmm. me, I think exploring and conveying that excitement of the novelty and the uncertainty and the potential danger, whatever it might be, is right. is a very powerful elixir for creating good prose and ultimately useful information. So that's number one. Write what you know, not always good advice. Uh, okay. Explore what you don't know, I think, might be, in many cases, better advice. Uh, the second, and this is extremely boring, but I do think it's practical, is mm -hmm. uh, book tours. I've never done a traditional book. Okay. I've never done a traditional book tour. This this is probably putting the cart before the horse because you need to, <laughs> you have some goals to check off before you get to book tour. But I've never done a physical book tour. I just uh, have not found it worth the expenditure of time, money, and energy uh, uh -huh. to help my readers or to help a given book. I find it more useful to focus on the virtual in many cases. Uh, so those are two things that immediately come to mind. Uh, which, okay. which, which book writers, which authors of books do you most hope to emulate? Are there any that come to mind? Sure. Um, well, are you familiar with Glennon Doyle Melton? She's... Um, I, I am she not. Just, okay. She just came out with her newest memoir. It was chosen for the Oprah Book Club, which like instantly made her, you know, super famous. Um, she's been making the podcast rounds too. She runs a blog called Monastery. Um, well, Elizabeth Gilbert, I'm sure you've heard of her. Oh, yeah, sure. love. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she's one who's writing. I just, you know, absolutely um, admire. She's a hero of mine, read all her stuff. Cheryl Strayed, author of Wild. Yeah, I really yeah. like her memoirs and her podcast is great. So, you know, this might be making myself sound a lot better than I am, but I like to think that those women are people in, you know, whose, um, I don't know, whose path I'm trying to follow, women whose writing I'm trying to emulate to some extent, obviously, with my own unique take. But that's the kind of essay-like memoir that I like to write 
but also, again, bringing a little bit of a practical take so that it's not just all flowery and beautiful. I'm going to stress test you a little bit. Okay. And I would ask the same if you were a male caller. I would be inclined to ask this. So you mentioned a bunch of female writers. Are there any male writers that you have read that you might emulate or practice emulating? I really like Mark Manson. Are you familiar with him? Mark um, Manson. Uh, oh, wait. I'm not going to get this right. What is it? Why I don't give a fuck. The subtle art of don't giving, not giving a fuck. Is that it? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. The subtle art of not giving a fuck. That's him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like him. His take on like self-help or whatever. Why do you, you, like, know, why like, do you, why do you like him to drill into it? Oh, I like. Well, I guess it's his voice. He's so honest. He's so raw. He's so funny um, and helpful. I mean, all of those things. Um, He just gets down to the heart of people. And he's not for everybody, but he's certainly for me. Okay. If you could just be a little careful with the face on the phone... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're getting a lot of beeping <laughs> um that oh, okay would, uh, sorry uh, that'd be great uh so, so <laughs> don't don't worry about it that's like my signature okay. move as well but um uh, okay. so okay. so here's what i would suggest is try to have in terms of role models and people you want to emulate two yeah. two current day authors who are relatively new You've already checked that box. Two authors or writers who have lasted at least 20 years. So find Mm -hmm. maybe one female, maybe one male. doesn't really matter in my opinion. Uh, John McPhee would be my usual go-to recommendation. M-C-P-H-E-E. He's been a staff writer for The New Yorker for several decades. He's won at least one, maybe two Pulitzer Prizes. Everything he writes makes me want to cry in my pillow and... uh, Poser as a brand on my forehead. He's amazing. Uh, and okay. then and then study some folks who have lasted a hundred or more years, meaning mm-hmm. okay. really long-standing folks. Mm-hmm. The sort of breezy convers- conversational style of a lot of contemporary writers will not last the test of time and i'm not saying that's true of anyone you mentioned but Mm -hmm. uh i think it is very much worth studying people who have uh, stood the test of time uh okay it's very hard to go wrong by emulating that and if you you want a short introduction to say john mcphee two recommendations one would be a book called levels of the game which is an entire book about one tennis match it sounds super boring and it will probably probably be one of your favorite books you've ever read it's incredible okay and did he write that did john mcphee write that yeah he wrote that and then the second is a collection of interviews i should say it's probably one interview spread over multiple segments but it is called The Art of Nonfiction, and it is an interview with John McPhee, or several interviews from the Paris Review. And it is absolutely phenomenal. You can also search his name, John McPhee, on my blog, 
for those people listening, okay. just go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash blog or search Tim Ferriss blog and it'll pop up. Search John McPhee. I have a couple of articles, at least one from the Princeton Alumni Weekly that I've reprinted on my blog with permission about the craft okay. of nonfiction writing that I think are very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So those would be a few recommendations. If you can create a successful blog or a mega successful single post, you can get a book deal. In the world of nonfiction, that is true. Uh, okay. And I think Mark Manson's a perfect example of that. <laughs> right. Are, yeah. Yeah. There are, there are many such cases. So the, the traditional publishing game can be shortcutted very effectively if you produce a single blog post that is mega successful or a blog itself that as a corpus is successful per se, which let's just call that 500,000 to a million uniques per month, then you can get a traditional book deal. Pretty much no problem. So those would right. be a few of my thoughts. Okay. And if you're going to write a book, get the book Bird by Bird. It will save your sanity and keep you tethered to reality so that you don't tailspin out of control and self-destruct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love Anne Lamont. She's great. Yeah. Agreed. Um, well, thank you. I've got so many notes. I've got so many great ideas. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for calling me. Am I a last person? No, I'm going to keep going. I think I'm going to do one or two more. We'll see how it, we'll see how it pans out. We'll see when my brain decides to go offline. When that happens, then I'm done. <laughs> okay. Great. <laughs> All right. Thanks for your time. I hope that helps. Okay. Thank you. Talk- well, I won't talk to you later. I'll hear you later on your podcast. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Hello. Is this Lillian? Yes. Is this Timmy? <laughs> it is Timmy. Oh, <laughs> you sound like my mom slash PE instructor. How are you? Hey, oh, no. <laughs> okay. So, which glass are you on? Oh, which glass? This is like six or seven, I would say, of. Hendrickson Ooh, soda. I'm getting really drunk, Timmy. Awesome. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm I'm very <laughs> I'm warmed up. Where are you at the moment? I'm in Washington D.C. D.C. But I'm not from here, so I'm from Lebanon. I'm from Beirut. From Beirut. Well, Charafna. Nice to meet oh, you. Oh, look at that. Yeah, I got a few <laughs> words here. There, maybe maybe it's I've got. That's about it. But uh, well, you never see so many things. <laughs> So how? So you're up late. I'm drunk, and it feels late. Uh, let's have some fun. How can I help? Well, you know, I think the thing I really wanted to talk to you about was that I discovered you, I think, three years ago, and I became so obsessed with optimization, and I just became like crazy. <laughs> and then I realized, like, I completely burnt out. And then I started hating you a lot. (laughs) And now I'm like a good place. But I just want to know, how do you optimize so much and keep a sense of joy and novelty in your life? Mm. Also, being here for the past two months, because I'm here on a short trip, I kind of understood a bit, like, life here is very different than life back home. And if optimization is about controlling variables in a complex system, this is kind of feasible here. (laughs) Well, back home, it's not as much 
So I don't know. Let's just talk about that. So it makes some sense. Sure. Well, let me ask you first, how, uh-huh. is, how is life different in Lebanon compared to well, here? I would start with the internet speed. That's like kind of <laughs> shit. You know, if I'm writing and I'm feeling like optimistic about something or I'm working and then I just wait for shit to load, I just lose my track of thought. <laughs> and then all my optimization goes down the crapper. Another thing would be like transportation. That's kind of shit. We don't have public transportation. So, so there's just more outside of your control. Exactly. So very much variables outside my control, but very much controlling of my life. Mm-hmm. So I would say a few things. So the first is that there is, I think, a misperception that I try to optimize everything. And I think it's important for us to define optimize. Mm-hmm. So let us define optimize in the context of efficiency as getting things done in the least amount of time possible. Uh-huh. Uh, there are domains in my life that I seek to optimize. Generally, mm-hmm. those are processes, tasks that I do not enjoy spending time on. And then mm-hmm. there are things that I do not optimize, right? I don't watch my favorite TV shows on 2X. I don't mm-hmm. read, I don't speed read poetry. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't boil myself in water because I want to spend less time in my hot bath by increasing the temperature. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, I, I'm not trying mm-hmm. to, well, I was going to say ejaculate as quickly as possible, but maybe that's too much alcohol. I'm not trying to have the fastest sex possible, for instance. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Sorry, use the E word. It happens. Uh, so the, the, the point being that there, uh, the efficiency is most important when you're trying to multiply outputs and mm-hmm. particularly when there, there are tasks or processes involved that you do not enjoy. Uh, so I, I don't make myself miserable by optimization mm-hmm. specifically because it is compartmentalized and limited to a specific subset of activities in my life. Does that make sense? And uh, I think secondarily, the commonality between, say, rules that I would follow here and rules that I would follow in Lebanon or in many other places are the same. Uh, And that is you have, for instance, uh, strategies and tactics Above above those two, you have a layer, which would be first principles. And the first principles that I follow could really be codified in the philosophical system of Stoicism. I mean, I have Mm-mm. a quote from Marcus Aurelius on my refrigerator. I'm looking at it right now. It's on the right-hand mm-hmm. door that I see every morning when I remove anything from my refrigerator. And the I think the core or one of the core tenets of Stoicism, whether you're looking at Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus, or otherwise, is mm-hmm. cl- close to what people in the U.S. at least would would know well as the Serenity Prayer. And a big component of that is identifying the things you can change versus the things that you cannot change. So in Lebanon, the things that you cannot change would include shitty transportation, shitty internet. <laughs> Here, they just keep changing and piling right. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Here, they might be 
different things, but nonetheless, there are still factors that are either within your sphere of influence and control or outside of your sphere of influence and control. So separating mm-hmm. those are very important. So those, those I would say, are two observations just offhand in response to your comments. Mm-hmm. Number one, relating to how not to be miserable optimizing. So I <laughs> choose, tar- choose your targets wisely. And then secondly, uh, the commonalities or the common operating system that you could run independent of environment meaning here or in Lebanon or in Ethiopia or in Japan, it doesn't matter. And yeah. uh, it's just a higher level of, of abstraction, if that makes sense. There are certain tactics mm-hmm. you may not be able to use. You may not be able to stream video effectively in certain places, but you can still use the higher levels, the higher first principles that you're imposing upon in a top-down fashion, all the rest of the decision-making that you, that you employ. Mm. That seems pretty legit. And actually, <laughs> I've heard you say before, but I just wanted to raise the issue. Have you been to our part of the world since? I haven't been to Lebanon. I've I've wanted to for a long time. Uh, what are you I, waiting for? I have Lebanese friends. They told me not to go because it was dangerous. Everyone uh, has Lebanese friends, and I don't trust those Lebanese friends. I've heard so much crap about them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, they said to me, they're like, well, you know, due to A, B, and C factors, I would not recommend that you go right now because it may not be the safest Bullshit. We just have a trash crisis and trash is eating our streets. That's totally fine. We still party hard. We <laughs> yeah. still eat good food. Uh, yeah, I would like to visit. I'd, I'd love to go to Beirut at some point. I've been to, I've spent time in Jordan. Uh, that's, yeah. that's about as close as I've gotten so far. You should come to Cairo. There's a startup event this December, and I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah, maybe and so. It's Dece- pretty close. December will be tough because I have my book launch in December, and oh uh, yeah, Christmas. So I'll, I'll, I'll be some. Thank you. I'll be a bit occupied in December, but never been to Egypt. I would love to check it out. Uh, mm-hmm. That will be a, a TBD, no doubt. But I may be spending. I think you you'd you'd enjoy to see like. Just the chaos there. And I'd love to see your perspective about like just <laughs> how people can like survive in a place like Cairo. Like every time I visit, I'm just amazed. You, yeah. You'd be shocked. I'm, yeah. sh- I'm sure I would be. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll have to brush up on my Arabic before I head over. But uh, I guess Egyptian Arabic should be the easiest, I would imagine, to kind of pick up because most of the movies and music and so on are produced in Egypt. Exactly. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. But very true. We will see. We will see. But yeah, I I would say that, uh, yeah, optimization can make you miserable and it will make you miserable if you apply it to all things. For sure, because yeah. you will. Only- yeah, I think I missed out on that part. Like, don't optimize the shit you enjoy. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> like, savor the shit you enjoy, which means, and very, uh, very often, that you are doing the opposite of optimizing. Right? You are actually yeah. de-optimizing. <laughs> we should find a word for that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you are elongating. You're distend- distending, sounds a little odd and anatomical, but you're, yeah, you're, you're extending the, uh, the, the time involved for the things that you enjoy. So mm. that's my take. But Well, thank you. For sure. I appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time. So thanks for dropping in your information. Thank you. Have a good night. All right. You too. All right.
，拜拜。Ciao。Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share. The coolest things I've found, or that I've been pondering over the week, that could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the、uh, the world of the esoteric, as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check. Check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>